Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. From Sugar 23, I'm Angela Ledgerwood, and this is Lit Up. Everyone, this is the last episode of the year, and I have chosen someone so fabulous who's got the best energy, is an intellect, she has such wit. She came over to my house and brought me gifts, and I feel like we might, if I'm lucky, form a friendship. It is Bianca Bosca. She has had a best-selling book called Cork Dork, a wine-fueled adventure among the obsessive sommeliers, big bottle hunters, and rogue scientists who taught me how to live for taste. She's the type of writer that blows up her life so she can go and become the things she wants to write about. What prompted this crazy life change was being at a fancy restaurant with her husband and hearing about the best sommelier in the world competition. And she thought, I want to be one too. As you'll hear on the pod, I've had my own journey into the wine world. I am making wine with my partner, Anthony. We have three acres of grapes and we've been on our own odyssey of sorts. And Cork Dork was one of the books I read as my gateway into this whole world. So I wanted to bring her on. She is an award-winning journalist. She is a best-selling author. She's a contributor for The Atlantic, The Wall Street Journal, and more. Hear our friendship blossom in this episode. I hope you love it. I have a woman in my living room, and she came bearing gifts And I read her book, Cork Dork, back in 2017 when it came out, when I had a completely different life and aspirations. Bianca Bosca, thank you for being here on this cold but very bright and energizing New York morning. Thank you. It's so nice to be here. I'm so happy to speak with you. So Bianca is one of those people that becomes obsessed with things And her obsessions aren't kind of like, oh, I'm just going to write about them and research them. They are let me immerse myself, take jobs, travel, so I can really live this experience, so I can write about it. Tell us a little bit about the beginning of your career and how it led to such an immersion. Yeah, well, I think, you know, I've come to this realization as I've gotten older that my brain is essentially a strip of flypaper. Um, it's just this like gooey mess that's always looking for interesting ideas and tidbits. And I think that in particular, you know, not everything obviously turns into an article or a book. Um, but every once in a while I come across something where I feel like it creates this seismic activity in my soul. You know, I, I find something where it kind of stops me in my tracks and I realize, oh my God, maybe everything I've thought about the world is wrong. And those are the ones that I begin to kind of tease out and lead to 
bigger stories, bigger books, whether it's Cork Dork or, you know, my, my new book at the picture, um, or the stories I write for the Atlantic. I am, I have realized also obsessed with obsession. And so these people who have a sort of incredible passion for verging on frenzy or fanaticism also really hooked me in. And that was how Cork Dork ultimately began. Um, I, at that point, was not a wine lover. Um, and what happened was essentially that my husband dragged me out to dinner one night, um, not so far from your living room. And uh, we were with a friend of his who loved wine. And the sommelier that night mentioned that he was preparing for something called the best sommelier in the world competition. And I thought that sounded like utter bullshit. <laughs> I was like, wait, opening and pouring wine? I mean, this is pretty straightforward stuff. But I thought that you know, I've always thought competitive eating was very interesting. I thought competitive drinking might be intriguing as well. Um, and so I started looking into this best sommelier in the world competition and I became obsessed. I just was intrigued by these videos that I started watching of these sommeliers who, you know, they were these well-dressed specimens who would walk around the tables and pour wines. And it was sort of like the Westminster dog show with booze. And the more I learned about this group of hyper-obsessive psalms, these cork dorks, um, it's not just a book title, it's you know, the kind of restaurant industry's nickname for the most passionate and obsessive enophiles, um, I became really intrigued by the lengths that people were going for wine. I mean, you know, divorcing their spouses to spend more time studying flashcards, um, hiring voice coaches, memory coaches, taking dance classes to learn how to move more gracefully across the floor. And, you know, I'd always thought of wine as a thing of pleasure, and they made it seem like something approaching just pain. And that was one of these seismic moments where I was like, what am I missing? You know, what is going on? Like, why are people sacrificing so much for this thing that just turns into expensive pee? And so that launched me um, also on this feeling that I was living this life of sensory deprivation in comparison to these Psalms who are living this life of sensory cultivation. And, you know, I wanted to know, like, could I smell what they did? Uh, what was I missing? Could any of us? And so um, I basically disowned my life at that point and started drinking very heavily. <laughs> In the mornings too, which I yeah. appreciate. And it's, it's morning now, but we would be drinking yeah. if I weren't pregnant. Um, so what were those first steps? You become obsessed with something mm. Did you and your husband, um, you know, start drinking together and tasting wine and talking about it? Or was it a more library research mode? What I think is so special about the book and kind of the way you approach your work is that it's in situ. Like you mm. actually put yourself in these situations. You become a seller rat. But what happened like that very next step? <laughs> Well, I think that in terms of my research, it tends to be all of the above. I mean, I think my research process, process is deeply inefficient and masochistic. But I think my hope is that ultimately it serves the reader really well. Um, Sorry to interrupt, but it also serves your life, which mm. I want to get into and kind of as this overarching theme for us all to think about. And I, in reading your book, was thinking, how can I... Like Bianca made her life bigger, richer, more exciting by, by finding a passion. Which I didn't know at the time would become a passion. It has since become a passion. But when I started, it was really, 
I think, you know, um, I think my relationship with wine at the beginning was really one of kind of antagonistic apathy. You know, I was like, this is kind of annoying and expensive. Um, and like, who are you to, you know, the, I'd always thought of these psalms and restaurant floras as like, you know, judgy waiters. They were sort of the undertakers of the restaurant world and they're like, you know, dark suits and, and, and scowls. And of course I couldn't have been more wrong. And, um, you know, I've since, wine has really started as something that I got interested in because I was curious about the people obsessed with it. And now it's something that I obsess over. And if you sit next to me at a dinner party and ask me about the wine, um, you will discover half an hour later when I'm still talking your ear off, just how passionate I am about it. Just to say that, you know, it's nonfiction. Like I didn't know where the journey would go. Mm. Um, but yeah, it really began, I think, um, I'm not very good at doing things in moderation. And so for this journey, as with, you know, Get the Picture, which is about art, they were really just a kind of, once I got the itch, I really jumped in. So I made this decision. I was going to quit my job and see if I could not just write about these cork dorks, but become one of them. Um, I couldn't look back and I couldn't hesitate. How did you find Morgan, mm. who is a psalm in God the book that, that really <laughs> is a mentor, someone who has such deep, dark feelings, yeah. you know, and, you know, such positive feelings about wine, but he felt typical, and that doesn't mean to say cliche in any way, in terms of the intensity of his belief system. Mm -hmm. So when I quit my job in order to train as a sommelier, I had somewhat of a plan. And this will eventually bring us to Morgan. But, you know, I quit my job. I'd been the executive tech editor at HuffPost, you know, job with executive in the title. And I was like, I'm going to start at a two Michelin star restaurant and work my way up to a three Michelin star restaurant from there, which if you know anything about the restaurant world, you know, is utterly delusional. I realized as I started talking to these psalms and meeting with them that um, they had a name for people like me. I was a civilian and I had no business in their tasting groups, on the restaurant floor with them, you know, all these places that I wanted to be. And so very quickly it became clear that I needed to start at the very bottom. And um, that began for me, you know, with getting this job as a seller rat. And that, you know, is really, I think, an appropriate name. I mean, I felt like a bit of a rodent, right, occupying the deepest, dankest corners of the restaurant. Um, also wasn't particularly great at my job at first, um, or maybe ever. Um, it's just sort of like a rodent infestation. I feel like I kind of wreaked havoc on the restaurant. Um, not intentionally, of course. And, you know, I realized that there was actually something very appropriate about starting at the bottom, which was that, you know, I really wanted to get past the fairy tale when it came to wine. Like, I think we hear a lot about the romance of wine. Um, and I really wanted to go beyond that because the, the reality is so much messier and so much more interesting. And so I started this job as seller at, which allowed me to kind of get behind and really see parts of the industry, parts of the wine world that we don't often see. As I got further in, I realized that I wanted to also try and pass the Court of Master Sommelier's Certified Sommelier exam. And this is sort of the gold standard for working the floor, was then at least. And I wanted to take this exam in part because I really wanted to be able to gauge 
if I had improved, right? Was I improving my taste buds? Was I learning something? Um, and so this test felt like a good way to gauge that. And then also a way to actually be able to work the floor as a SOM. Um, and it turns out that becoming a sommelier is still very much an apprentice-based system. It's traditional in that way. And I began scouring New York City for my mentor. I was like, who is going to be the person who will show me the way of wine? And bit by bit, I kept hearing about this guy who was different, let's say. He was a big personality. You know, he was, kind of knew everything. He was preparing for the master sommelier exam, which is, you know, at that time there were fewer master sommeliers in the world than Navy SEALs. I mean, and it was that sort of level of wine knowledge. And when I met Morgan for the first time, which was uh, at Terroir, uh, what he described as his sort of spiritual home in New York City, I was transfixed. I mean, this guy, he just, I'd never heard someone talk about wine with this passion, with this vigor, with this excitement. And for him, it wasn't just a beverage. It was a way of life. It was something um, that didn't just give you a little buzz. It was something that was, you know, on the level of beauty in music and art. It was, you know, it was Mozart in a glass. It was something spiritual. It was so much more that I couldn't understand. Um, and I attached myself to Morgan. I thought, I have to do whatever I can to be next to this guy. Something you mentioned is wine as a way of life or obsession. And my experience of coming into wine and learning about it is as a server who worked at this restaurant in LA that was very serious about its wine program. And now my partner and I have three acres of grapes on Long Island. The magic of this industry is the people, mm -hmm. but also how linked it is to the land. And sometimes I think I came to wine as feeling like it was heady and intimidating, and I think that's because we're often in a restaurant in that setting with a som, and we feel like we don't have the knowledge to pick a wine gracefully. Um, but actually, once you meet growers, they're so literally down to earth <laughs> with their hands in the earth. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between the Morgans of the world, like the Somms, mm. but then the wine makers mm. of the world, but also how it's so important that those worlds collide and connect because it's the stories of the winemakers that the yeah. Somme's actually tell their customers about mm -hmm. that creates the romance that you're talking about. I totally agree with what you're saying about this partnership that has to exist between Somme's and winemakers, between people in restaurants and people on the farm. And at the same time, I'm going to say something that might be a bit controversial. Um, and that's that I think we misuse and misunderstand the idea of terroir. So terroir, for people that are not familiar with it, is an incredibly powerful, incredibly frequently cited idea in the wine world. And it's this idea that's very difficult, actually, I think, to pin down. It ranges from the idea that uh, wine tastes of the earth that it was grown in, sometimes terroir we, we take back to meaning terre, the French word. So, you know, when you taste Chablis or Champagne, I mean, you can taste the brininess of the oyster shells because it was grown in this earth that has the remnants of fossilized oysters, right? And of course, grapes are a natural thing. I know just from being kind of a shitty home gardener that like 
the place influences the plant. Now we talk about terroir as being this good thing in a wine. We want wines to taste of their terroir. We pay extra for wines that express their terroir. Um, but really through the 18th century, wine that had a taste of terroir, a goût de terroir in French, uh, was considered defective. That was a disagreeable wine. There's some argument actually that it wasn't until France and Europe started feeling more competition from new world wineries that this idea that there was something really special, something magical that you couldn't replicate anywhere else in these vineyards, on these soils, in this European country, uh, that the concept of terroir began to really take root and blossom. Um, so I'm here to say that I believe that terroir is a thing. It's wonderful, but I think it's not as straightforward as we think, and, and some new scientific research suggests that um, there's a lot actually in the microbes, really, in the fungi. I think wineries have yet to figure out how to make that as sexy as rolling vineyards. You know, ter the terroir, the idea that terroir is really linked to a specific soil is a little sexier, I think, but um, I have no doubt that the great minds will come up with some way to talk about uh, yeast strains in a way that's equally. Um, romantic. Wouldn't you say, though, that those yeast strains that are natural to that area, like in my mind, that is terroir. Yeah. Like in our wine, for example, we used just the natural yeast that were on there. And yeah. I didn't know, and, you know, walking down the, the rows of grapes, they have a kind of a cloudy white on them. And I thought, you know, what is this stuff? <laughs> and then Anthony was like, it's the yeast, you dummy. It's like, it's the bacteria. It's the magic. It's what is going to make yeah. our wine taste like it is without adding the yeast. And so often people add all this stuff to wine. And I think the brain explosion for me, kind of as the beginner coming into wine, was that now wine is tinkered with at such a level yeah. or it's not. Mm -hmm. And there's this very militant natural wine movement and they have their belief systems, um, mm -hmm. which is about not adding all these additives, right. which I totally agree with. But then the sulfuric acid is like this very controversial. Preservative. Preservative yeah. element, you know, of like how stable do we want our wine? But a part of the book I found so riveting was how you described the difference between wine that's made in like a Gattaca style mm. lab mm. versus what we imagine when we think of like Little House on the Prairie, which right. is, you know, winemakers letting nature do its thing, right. taking those grapes off. So can you talk about going, I think this was in Napa, mm. to the this lab and just tell us about all the crazy things that can be added to wine, but then how that differs to the natural wine movement. Yeah. So um, as I was training to become a Psalm and going to blind tasting groups and spending hours and hours of my day drinking and recovering from hangovers, um, I realized that I was getting much better at being able to tell, let's say, a Sauvignon Blanc from Australia from a Sauvignon Blanc from California. But I still didn't understand what made a good wine from a bad wine. And I felt like if I was going to eventually work the floor, I needed to be able to explain to someone what made one wine better than the other. Um, and so I started asking around, asked Morgan, I asked 
you know, wine economists, I started asking people, you know, what makes for a good wine? And I really couldn't find an answer. And what I found is that while they couldn't agree on what made for a good wine, there was a lot of consensus on what made for a bad wine. So that sent me to what a lot of people in the wine world would consider the epicenter of bad wines, um, to this company out in California that, you know, they make everything from age-worthy reds to the sort of stuff you might buy on Amtrak. And so basically, you know, there's a lab um, owned by Treasury Wine Estates where they don't talk about making wine, they talk about developing a wine. And essentially what they do is they make wines and then they bring in just people like you and me and they have them taste them and they have them rate them. They basically have them say, you know, okay, is this sweet enough for you? Is it purple enough? Do you want more raspberry? And basically they come back with the survey results and they say, oh, okay, people want a little more blackberry in the wine, no problem, we can make that happen. Or, you know, it turns out this one needs to be a little redder, like no problem, we can make that happen. And essentially what I learned as I spent more time in the winemaking piece of this is that there's dozens of different additives that can be put into wines to massage their flavors. And so this is everything from powdered fish protein to um, egg whites to oak chips. If you want to bump up the green bell pepper flavor of a wine, you know, change the yeast you add to it. If you want to add a little bit more Dr. Pepper aromas, you know, add a different yeast strain. We're not talking ultimately about adding artificial flavors and essences to a wine. Wine is still made fundamentally with grapes, but still there's a lot of different things you can add to it to change it. And I will say that, you know, these are, this is definitely done at the sort of mastige level. So with more inexpensive wines, um, but winemakers don't have to tell you if they add these things into their wines. And so they're also done at other levels. I mean, I remember talking to a winemaker who was like, you know, there's something like hundreds of tons of oak chips that get shipped to California every year, but of course no one uses it. I think that when we hear about the idea of additives in wines, we get scared, we get a little nervous, we get turned off. There's nothing that doesn't sound quite delicious about egg whites in our wine. Um, and at the same time, you know, wine has been massaged and tinkered with forever. I mean, the Romans used to put lead dust in their wines, which I certainly wouldn't recommend. Um, but also in Bordeaux, I mean, they've been adding egg white to fine and filter their wines for hundreds of years. So I came away from this um, eventually actually writing a defense of bad wines in an op-ed for the New York Times. And when I wrote this piece, I didn't expect to get some nice emails from readers, which was lovely. Um, but what I really didn't expect was to get threats. And I had people writing in after this piece came out. Um, this piece was essentially, I should say, an argument of why bad wines aren't necessarily so, why quote unquote bad wines are not necessarily so bad. And basically, you know, I think that like, you could argue that there's a dark side to this technological revolution in the winery. And at the same time, it has democratized access to decent wine. And I think that for some people, their epiphany will happen with a 1961 Barolo. But for some people, the glass that leads them down their wine journey will be yellowtail. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. With professional-grade industrial supplies, count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones 
who get it done. Um, so I wrote this piece, and like I said, was not expecting to get threats, but I did. I had people emailing me to tell me I was, you know, everything wrong with the United States. I was the reason Trump had gotten elected. Oh, my God. This, that, the other. Um, the New York Times wine critic actually dedicated an entire column to arguing why, why I was wrong. Um, and to me, though, the response really spoke to this perspective that I find really troubling in the wine world, which is this tendency to tell people what to taste instead of teaching them how to taste. Um, and I think that a big part of my journey, a big part of what I hope that Cork Dork does is ultimately give people the toolkit to be able to taste for themselves, to really take control of their own relationship with wine. Um, so yeah, I think that there's, uh, I think part of that is of course being very open-eyed about how our wines get made. Um, and I think that it also means looking beyond some of the hand-waving that gets done over saying that all of this is a, a beautiful architect, is a beautiful agricultural product, and you don't have to worry about the rest of it. <laughs> like, maybe we should worry about some of it and, and just look a little deeper. No, it's very complicated because I, you know, now that I have more knowledge and we've kind of committed to a certain extent of not tinkering with wine like we don't add any of the additives but we do add some of the the sulfur to stabilize it um but I still find it really hard to try and decipher from a label like what this vineyard is trying to do and you're often not in a situation where like you can google you know the vineyard at, when you're at the restaurant trying to decide which bottle to pick um but can you give us some tips and tricks? Like one, of course, is that if it doesn't have a vintage on it, that means the wine can come from any year. It's alcoholic literacy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and if, you know, if it says red blend right. and it's not specifying the type of grapes, then you can kind of decipher from that that this isn't this winery's either kind of elevated wine or they're blending all different types of grapes and they're not even telling you the percentages of of what right. because it's really interesting to taste a wine and go oh this is 30 percent you know Syrah or and you know 80 percent this although that wouldn't add up percentage wise <laughs> but what do you look for when you're thinking I want to drink something specific tonight. I want to back up a bit because I think that being able to decipher a wine label in some ways starts long before you ever get close to a bottle of wine. I've been talking a lot about myths and fairy tales and one myth that jumped out at me very quickly um, as I was training my palate was this idea that if you're not a good taster, you'll never be one. And I think that there's a lot of people who espouse this belief that essentially being a good taster, being able to smell, you know, strawberry and quince in the glass of wine in front of you is really a matter of winning the genetic lottery. And I remember actually meeting a Sam who uh, really concerned me because he had this heightened sense of smell ever since he was really young. And he described how when he was little, his mom would hide cookies around the kitchen and make him find them based on smell alone. And I found this wow. utterly, yeah, I found this utterly demoralizing because I had no such 
olfactory prowess. I think part of the reason we think we're not very good at tasting and smelling is because we've really ignored those senses. And we can blame Plato and Aristotle for that. They decided early on that taste and smell were these base animalistic senses. And I think that's that's wrong. I think Psalms really show us the error of our ways in that regard. Um, but I think that part of what we get wrong with that is also um, that we can actually get better. Uh, and you know, humans, we are already better than we think, you know, we're better than rats when it comes to certain odors, even dogs for some smells. Um, but really we can cultivate our senses of taste and smell. And so one of the advices that I got from Psalms, but also from master perfumers, was to build my sense memory. And basically the logic behind that is, you're never going to be able to smell strawberry in a glass of wine if you can't smell strawberry and in strawberry. And building your sense memory on a literal level means trying to describe the smell of everything you encounter over the course of a day. Uh, you know, describe your, the smell of your mouthwash in the morning. Describe your shampoo when you're at the shower. Describe the coffee as you're making it. Describe, you know, that. take a little smell of that parsley before you put on your food at night. Um, and really putting language on aromas helps us lock them in our brains. And that's really critical for then being able to sit down in a glass of wine and being able to say, you know, ah, like this is, I get peach, I get this. And being able to then figure out do you like it and why? And, and to be able to think critically about that glass. And I think that that becomes really key when it comes to then deciphering a wine label and getting more from a drink. And the reason for that is, you know, I often feel like when I was initially working as a seller at, I couldn't figure, I would look at a wine label and try, you know, that I was in charge of cellaring and I couldn't figure out, was this the grape variety? Was this name here the, the vineyard? Was it the name of the winery? I mean, there's a lot of times where that information, even the limited information on a wine label is totally overwhelming. And so I think that at the very minimum, as you're trying to build your palate, as you're getting deeper with your relationship with wine, just try and pay attention to what is this wine made with? What grape was this wine made with? And where did it come from? And that can start as something as generic as Italy and then begin over time to say, oh, this was from, you know, Tuscany. I think that that then allows you to organize that information in your brain to be able to say, oh, okay, this is a Pinot Noir from Oregon. How does this compare to the Pinot Noir that I had the other night from California, from Burgundy, from Germany? Um, and I will recommend, you know, if people are looking for some homework over the holidays or really any time, maybe start by just picking one grape variety and drinking it around the world. I think it's a very helpful way to wrap your mind and your taste buds around the permutations of a specific grape. Uh, and also drink your wine with tasting reference around you. You know, open that bottle, um, look up tasting notes for that, let's say, Cabernet Franc, and, you know, get some violets, get some, you know, rosemary. Just get things around you so you can sort of stick your nose in the glass and smell it and say, okay, does this smell like a leaf? And then smell the leaf. You can stick your nose in the glass. Does it smell like a raspberry? Smell a raspberry. Um, and by the way, smell it orthonasally through your nostrils, but also smell it retronasally, meaning pay attention to the smell when it's actually in your mouth. Um, so I don't know if that totally answers your question, but I do think that being in charge of your own sensations of flavor is a very important prerequisite for making sense of the information on the wine label. That makes so much sense. <laughs> of course it does, because... It's just a way to simplify and divide up the ways 
your brain can process the information. And that feels so exciting with your friends. And I thought, you know, when we were kids, you'd always like sometimes at birthday parties, like they'd set up a box that you put your hand in, you know, or things you had to smell or taste as the game. And I always thought that that was such a fun one and, you know, gross and creepy. But I thought... Psalms are actually doing this as adults and it's fun yeah, yeah, and silly. Anthony did a wine course at Cornell through their agriculture school and he got this kit of odors and mm. scents of, you know, the barnyard smell that you could then connect to wine, which isn't necessarily bad. You know, often it, with natural wines, they can go a bit strange and people love that about them or really get put off by these certain scents. But I think what I've connected to in the wine world and that comes out in your book is that there is also a playfulness, you know, when people decide not to take it too seriously, but, you know, you are using those senses and like taste and smell, they're like the most beautiful things. And the world opens you up to people who love to get tipsy and, you know, so often wine is paired with food. And so you're eating and drinking and having long, boozy lunches and conversations. <laughs> I'm just wondering, take us to a place that was very special for you on this. You can make a really fun game out of testing people on aromas. And I think I don't know if people had a good time doing this, but I entertained myself when I, it was my turn to bring the wines for the blind tasting groups that I was doing with these aspiring master sommeliers. Um, I would actually also bring along covered cups of different herbs and fruits and vegetables that people had referred to in their tasting notes to basically say, okay, you said tarragon. Can you smell tarragon? Do you know tarragon when you smell it? Do you know quince when you smell it? I remember someone also telling me, you know, I always say quince, but I've never actually smelled quince. Um, but going back to, you know, the romance question. So one thing that I did as part of this journey that actually didn't make it into the book uh, was to take myself to China to try and research the wine industry there. And basically what happened is I felt like I was learning how to taste, but what I didn't understand was how do we develop a taste for wine? And China was really interesting to me in part because I was an East Asian studies major. Um, I spent a lot of time in China doing research and writing. And it was this place that was kind of new to the world of red wine and white wine, you know, as we think of it. And of course, there's a, a rich tradition of all different types of wines in China, but you know, the red grape wine uh, was sort of having this renaissance. And the wine industry there was really trying to get the middle class in China excited about drinking bottles of red and white wine. So I wanted to understand how were they doing that? How do you kind of create this wine culture? And so I went to China and I participated. I did everything from like teaching wine classes to going to a place called Yantai, which is one of the foremost wine-growing regions in China. And I went there as part of this big wine-judging delegation. And so, I mean, I've never drunk so much wine in my life. I mean, I am not exaggerating. I think I threw up at least two times a day. Uh -huh. <laughs> and I was spitting out my wines, and I was a mess, let me tell you. Um, and, of course, they would then be followed on by these just 
feasts. I mean, incredible food. Everything from silkworm pupae to sea cucumbers and all of it with wine upon wine and lots of toasting and lots of drinking. And I think that for me, this experience, and I should say, just to set the scene, this place, Yentai, is wild. I mean, I think there's more castles there than all of Bordeaux. I remember driving from the airport to the hotel where we were staying, where we were doing this wine judging, and we passed, I mean, turrets, columns, fountains, I mean, places that made the Louvre look puny. Um, I mean, just these huge estates. And what I found really remarkable about this experience was, you know, I do think that there is this natural tendency for socializing that goes along with wine. And part of it is just due to the design, right? A bottle is 750 milliliters. It is, by and large, too much for one person to consume. And so I think to me it was this wonderful just example of the way that wine brings people together. But it did strike me that, um, you know, when we talk about wines tasting like blueberries, for example, that's not a big tasting note in China. Blueberries are not, you know, in everyone's refrigerator. Um, and I remember one of the judges next to me actually talking about a wine that was evocative of roasted duck neck. You know, that was his tasting note for the wine. It was an experience that really made me appreciate wine in a different way. Um, and also appreciate its ability to connect people. And also, you know, I think obsession with wine makes you realize it is a it can be a very universal concept. <laughs> I love that point you've made about how the the cultural influence towards a palate, you know, the foods you eat, it, they are the reference you have for tasting anything. Um, Okay, so what's the best cure for a hangover? Oh my God, I wish I knew. I actually get terrible hangovers. I mean, it is a miracle that there is a book on this table in front of you. I mean, I don't have a cure for a hangover, except I suppose not drinking in the first place. But I remember asking this question of Jancis Robinson, who is, you know, the godmother of wine. I mean, she's, if you haven't read her work, she's incredible. And she told me that her hangover cure was to take milk thistle before she drank and after she drank. So I have attempted that with, mm, I'm not sure I've seen it work for me, but I'm going to keep trying. You've got to try something. How do you take milk thistle? Is it a... Oh, just like, it's like a vitamin. A, it's oh, like a little like pill. A it's vitamin. like a vitamin. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. well, so give you that a try. Your, yeah. Mm -hmm. But I guess other than that, just water and time. Okay, I have two last questions for you. We are going to talk again next year about your book that's coming out um, in February 2024, and it's called Get the Picture. Can you quickly give us this transition? <laughs> you wrote Cork Dork 2017, and it had such a life. And I feel like it's, it's one of those books that just keeps having lives. But then, you know, talking about senses, sight, and how we um, appreciate beauty or what does that even mean or even beyond beauty what is something that's arresting disturbing what's what is art you don't have to answer that you can answer that in our <laughs> next pod but how did you get from wine to art yeah so um I wish I could say that after cork dork I just you know lived happily ever after and I was just a well-adjusted super smeller um but the reality is I 
fell into a rut. And I will say at that point in time, Art and I were not on speaking terms. Um, and I'd really had spent a lot of my adult life feeling like I didn't know how to do art. Um, you know, I would go to a gallery or museum and I felt like I was a solid, you know, two master's degrees and a few tattoos away from figuring out like what was going on. But also like who had time for that sort of thing? I mean, I was living this hyper-optimized routine where I was like, you know, texting from the toilet while listening to podcasts on 2x speed. Um, I mean, you know, insane. Um, but I started to feel like I was missing something by turning my back on art. And I started looking into it. I started going to galleries. I started going to museums. And I realized that the art still made no sense to me, but the people around it were fascinating. I mean, talk about obsession. I mean, they like picked fights with the color blue. They, you know, took out these crazy credit card debts to show hunks of metal they swore could change the world. They treated paintings like they were as necessary as vital organs. And, you know, I'd never met a group of people who were willing to sacrifice so much for something of so little obvious practical value. And I just didn't understand, like, why art? You know, why does it matter? Can, you know, some streaks of pigment on cloth really change our being? And I was fascinated that actually scientists also argue that art is a really necessary part of our lives. You know, it's like they compare it to food or sex, which is, sure, maybe, but I certainly had never felt, you know, my stomach growl for a painting the way it had for a burger. Um, and so I also was really intrigued by the way that these people behaved like they'd accessed this trapdoor in their brains. And people who, like, lived for art, who surrounded themselves for it, whether they were artists or gallerists or just art lovers, like, they really made my life feel extremely claustrophobic. I should also say, you know, they felt sorry for me. They said that I lacked visual literacy, which they said was um, really a risk in a world so, I mean, they basically made it sound like an existential threat in a world that's so full of images. Um, and I started to wonder, you know, could I see what they did in art? Could I see what they did in the world? And so I really wanted to put myself in, my, in their hands and see what they could do for my life. Unfortunately, they really wanted nothing to do with me. So as I started reaching out to people hoping to have these conversations, um, they, they told me to get lost, more or less. Closed door after closed door. Um, I had no business sort of asking the questions I wanted to in the art world. And obviously, the more people told me to stay away, the more curious I became to get inside and then share what I learned. And so, yeah, Get the Picture is really this adventure in art, in looking, and I think it's, you know, part guide to the hidden logic of the art world and part quest to learn how to live more beautifully. I cannot wait. Okay, last question. What lights you up? Oh, what a great question. I love it. No one's ever asked me that before. I want to ask everyone that. That's going to be my go-to. I'm going to go to you every dinner party. Please I'm gonna, borrow every, it. It's going to be my icebreaker from now on. Um... I would say, and this is going to sound cliche because every cliche about parenthood is totally true, but my son lights me up and in so many different ways. But I will also say that being a parent to a young child often gives me the experience that I now have with art. And not only is he himself just light incarnate, but little kids make you look Re, little kids make you re-look at ordinary things in a way that I think is also similar to what art can do in our lives. And so um, just as an example, like who knew buses were so freaking magical? You know, like, there is nothing I think he enjoys as much as a, 
as much as a bus, except maybe escalators. There's, there's something similar I found to that experience of art where it makes you stop, reconsider, and just wallow in the magic of life a little bit more. Bianca, thank you so much for sharing your passion and <laughs> exquisite way with words. I have loved talking to you and let's do it next year. I can't wait. And thank you. Thank you so much for making Cork Dork part of your own wine journey. I'm so grateful. And I can't wait to try your wine. I'm, give, I'm leaving you with some. Okay. I'm giving you some to take <laughs> home. So thank you so much. Thanks again. Lit Up is a podcast from Sugar23. It's hosted by me, Angela Ledgerwood, and is produced by Liam Billingham. Mike Mayer and Michael Sugar are the executive producers. The theme music is by Andre Radofsky. Until next time, bye everyone. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.